Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. When times change, companies often have to change too. Ruben Wilcock of Blackfin Ventures has seen lots of pivots in startups and growth companies. In this episode, he talks about how companies should go about it, the challenges along the way, and how to avoid expensive mistakes. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, either directly or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Ruben Wilcock, who is Head of Ventures at Blackfoot's Ventures. Welcome back to the podcast, Ruben. It's great to be back on it. Thanks for inviting me. It's our pleasure. So we had you back a long time ago, way back on episode two, when you were really quite a new manager in, a, in one sense, and that you were setting up the operation. You obviously progressed quite a lot since then. But we start by finding out a bit more about you in case anyone didn't listen to episode two or they've forgotten. How did you become involved in venture capital? Yeah, well, it's a, probably a less usual journey than some, Brian, because I, I've gone through a journey of academia, startups and startup acceleration. So I've, I've got a PhD in microchip design and I was in the world of academia for a little while doing research, all kinds of crazy and wacky things. Tracking devices on the back of honeybees was one that sticks in my head. I helped the University of Southampton to commercialise and spin out their research. And I did my own startups. I've done four startups myself. One of them successfully exited. And then I founded an accelerator, helped a lot of other people do the same thing, launch their businesses, launch their ideas before joining joining Blackfinch in 2019. Excellent. And Blackfinch Ventures is, is relatively new. Blackfinch has been around a long time. Tell us a bit about what Blackfinch does. Absolutely. So Blackfinch, we're a multi-asset investment specialist. Mm-hmm. So we have investments in many different asset classes. They span uh, renewables, property development loans, listed equities. And then the venture capital part is the the part that I head up. So we have, as of today, around about, I think, 700 million or so assets under management. So it's quite a reasonable size, mainly born out of the tax advantage space, but diversifying into the, the normal kind of fund management space too. And on the venture capital side, we have two key products. One's our EIS, Discretionary Managed Portfolio Service, and the other is our Venture Capital Trust. Yeah, and the VCT is interesting because when we spoke last time, I think it was kind of nascent. You're sort of thinking about it, but it wasn't launched. Now you have, maybe it's worth just asking you for a minute or two, you've launched a brand new VCT, which is kind of different because hardly anybody does that. How has it been getting this brand new sort of VCT off the ground. You're right. It's it's very challenging launching a new VCT for several reasons. The main one being that you're not going to be paying dividends for a few years unless you're taking over a, a VCT. So, you know, why would you invest in a, in a brand new VCT? So we had to really leverage on our track record, I think, as a team and sorts of companies we're investing in, our investment process to get that off the ground. And yeah, I mean, we're really pleased that we, that we managed to do that. The advantages, of course, of getting in early in a VCT is that the portfolio is more concentrated. So if you do get an exit, some some people remember in the early Octopus days, if you do get an exit early, you get a special dividend and those can be quite significantly higher. So there are reasons to, to do it. I think we launched it 2019 and we, we um, did the first allotment 2020, first investment 2020. And we've grown it really nicely. So I think we've got about 20 companies in there now. And I'd say I'm really quite proud of how we've been very careful uh, sort of to curate that portfolio to make sure it's really kind of 
on mandate and it creates a very nicely diversified portfolio in the VCT. It's grown in size, of course, every year it's grown more and more. And I think we're just really excited to see where it's going because what we what we see and what we plan is that that VCT, once it's got to kind of mainstream levels and it's paying dividends, it's going to be a really, you know, it's going to be a really good opportunity for those that want to to get into VCTs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you mentioned that dividends aren't coming for a while. I think this is the one aspect that I'm interested in because there's some resistance in the market to VCT or VCTs to a large extent are seen as income products, rightly or wrongly. How have you find the reception in the market when you're not saying actually it's going to be three years before you get a dividend? Yeah, no, exactly. It's not super long now, so we're expecting 2024, which isn't isn't miles away, particularly in the kind of current climate and what you can get elsewhere. But I think it's all around the excitement of a new VCT, and it comes back to that kind of concentration point. And we're going into companies that are all obviously post the big changes that happen with the patient capital review mm-hmm. and all those types of types of differences. So these are real kind of venture type companies, potential for really good returns. There aren't any of the kind of historical historical companies in there which are more sort of focused on on less less kind of growth and just keeping your capital. And also it's the same for COVID. So because we made the first investments after the pandemic had launched and we were aware of that whole landscape, it just meant that at least our portfolio hasn't had really exposure to to that in companies suffering because of the of the of the, uh, of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting whether you'll have a new portfolio. So I'm I'm glad to hear that's going well. What we wanted to talk about today was pivots, and I guess if we listen to news, kind of U turns and politics are flavour of the day at the moment, but. They happen in companies too, and you made the point that you think we're going to see a lot more pivoting in the near future because of, of what's going on in the wider market. So we'll probably start by saying or asking you, what is a pivot for a company, and what's your perspective on that? Yeah, let's be clear. Uh, not all U-turns and pivots are bad. So maybe <laughs> the analogy with recent events is not is not the best one when it comes to startups. But so a pivot, I mean. You know, a pivot can be in many different areas. What people always associate a pivot with normally is around product. And the the really interesting thing about that is that when you're at the early stages of a high-growth, high-tech company, your job, your whole job in the world as a founder is to test a hypothesis as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and you're really intending just to learn whether you've got your hypothesis correct and then making a change. And so the earliest, the stage of the company the more absolutely vital it is that you're constantly pivoting and changing and trying something new and seeing if it works because, you know, you will get it wrong. And so pivots are really important. So pivots and products happen very early on a lot. And then you'll have other pivot types as well. So, for example, a very classic one we see in the portfolio is a shift from SME or mid-market sales to enterprise. Mm-hmm. And that's a strategy, you know, demographic type type pivot where you're saying, okay, do we really want to be doing outbound sales and maintaining a big team of SDRs and AEs to get deals that only bring us in, I don't know, one to three, four thousand pounds a year when we could be focusing on enterprise and bring in tens of thousands a year from each each client? Obviously, a different process, longer, longer sales process, and, and you have to hit different metrics and the product probably needs to be a bit different. But but that's a, a really big strategy pivot in who you sell to. And then other pivots can be 
reacting to macro. So right now, the environment is looking pretty uncertain, availability of capital. There's this worry that, that it might be more tricky to, to get funding um, going into next year. So you might be pivoting on your, your overall kind of team structure and your cost base. Okay. So there's a couple of examples in there. And you you hinted at the macro environment. Do you think we're at some sort of change point in the macro? I mean, we've we've seen some sort of bubble perhaps in the last couple of years in terms of capital flowing in. There's supposedly still capital on the sidelines, but to what extent is it really there? And and how easy is it going to be for companies to access that in the, in the near future? It's, it's certainly the question that everyone's asking, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and, you know, we're talking to other fund managers all the time about this. You know, what's, how, what, how are you seeing inflows? How are you seeing deal flow? You know, what are valuations like? And I would agree that in the last two years, and it was probably a peak about a year, year and a half ago, there did seem to be a lot of capital available and valuations in companies that we're investing in hit a kind of all-time high. So to get the best companies, you had to pay quite a bit to get them. And so it became more important than ever to pick the right ones. Right now, I think what's happening, for, from our experience, actually available to capital is not disastrous. You know, we're, we're, we're tracking similar to last year. So we're kind of, you know, we're quite comfortable in that, in mm-hmm. that sense. Although I, I hear that generally, you know, there's the uncertainty. I think from the investment space, you know, running the investment team, that's one of the main things I worry about. The investment space, we're seeing a lot of deals, but everyone is being a little bit more selective, a little bit more careful. And I would say that we're looking for companies, we're slightly less attracted to companies where it's an all or nothing growth plan. So you're piling capital in to get the, you know, to, to wrench up the levers of growth and and get it to scale up really quickly. But if it goes wrong, it goes wrong big. At the moment, those types of companies don't look too attractive because no one's quite sure what's going to happen to the availability of capital or, you know, what's what impact is inflation going to have, what impact are the macroeconomic effects going to have. So we are looking at companies that have good opportunities for strong growth that fit the mandate, but also have really sensible you know, teams in place that are able to manage cash if it doesn't go right. Yeah. And clearly what happens within companies is important. So companies could change in, in ways that, you know, if if you're representative of the market, they could change what they're doing in a way that might appeal to you better. How do you think companies sh- should react to what's going on just now? So I think if I was giving advice to founders, I would say a few things. First of all, and this is a slightly overused term, but I do think it's valuable, I would embrace what's called default alive, which is make it really clear to your investors that whilst you have this big ambition, you know, the downside is is quite protected. So you're investing for growth. Mm-hmm. And if uh, market factors change, and if the parameters change and that growth isn't forthcoming, you know, you are you're able to adjust the cost base of the company. And so you can kind of live within your means. Um, just like during COVID, where we saw companies having to continue for a period of time and and see it out and then start to grow. So I think default alive is important. And, it, and think, is that a matter of reducing costs or just keeping an eye on them or or, or trying to get more money in the door? It, it, I think it's more about efficiency, actually. So getting money in the door is one thing and availability capital. If you If you have the opportunity to raise a bit more at this point, I think the answer is you should, mm-hmm. because it just gives you that enough runway to hopefully see out some of the, the the corrections that might happen. And but I think it's more about just efficiency, because at any one time a startup that's VC backed is never super efficient. And just being absolutely sure that every high you're making 
you're making the right hire, you're testing them. If it doesn't work out, you're changing them, you know, and you're not tempted to just, let's give people another six months and see if Mm -hmm. they work out. So it's just making sure that every pound that you're spending is generating value and growth. Yep. And and what else? So you, so you mentioned this is the first thing you think, but what else do you think management, how else do you think they should be reacting? Yeah, I think it comes again to that original point of iterating as fast as you can. So we're always quite attracted to companies that are really on top of their data. And what that might mean, for example, being very good at things like cohort analysis, where you're understanding the changes that you've made and what that cohort of customers has ended up doing in terms of engagement and staying with the platform. But being able to test a hypothesis quite quickly through an A-B test or something and work out what works. So we had a company in our portfolio the other day I was on the board of, and it was just great to see because they were saying, you know, we had this idea, it's kind of a recruitment platform that you could apply for five jobs at once and you'd find one but the platform would help you through the machine learning find four other similar ones that met your criteria and you could hit one button and it would apply for all five so it's far less work and you're you know you're trying to reach more employers and so they they run an ab test so some people don't get that experience some people do and it's very clear if they do you get an increase in applications and overall success metrics so being able to operate in a very data-driven way run these tests it, to inform your decision making that I think that's really helpful mm-hmm. when you're going into a time like this where you know you've got to be quite mm-hmm. lean and is that something where you think companies have to have that expertise in place and they just run it quicker or do you think companies that, that haven't quite got that in place they can catch up and actually get on top of that I think it's a culture and, and, and a men- mentality so there's so many different types of founders out there and some founders will you know just be very fixed and have high conviction in their own decision making and go forth and just kind of try and execute that others will be a bit more tentative and say right well i think this is the case uh, let's test it and see so i think it is a culture of questioning your own your own conviction and your own thoughts about processes it can be taught and so we obviously you know use examples i just gave across our boards to try and encourage others to do the same thing but i do think it's a bit of a mindset yeah yeah it's kind of interesting there because you Obviously, you like the data saying the visionary founder is a very tempting thing for an investor in the sense of you want someone who's got that bold vision. Steve Jobs is obviously obviously portrayed as being, I know what the market wants and I'm going to give it to them without you know, actually necessarily testing it in detail. Is that a, a danger for investors, do you think? I, I think it is. And I think when you read the stories about people like that, they're spun in a way to make it seem like these people are great prophets who who know what's mm-hmm. going to happen in the future. And the reality is they don't. And probably if you looked into how that vision got percolated down through the departments, people in those departments would be running these tests and would be reporting back. Um, and so it's about having, you know, you have that vision. This is the this is where I want to get to. I want to be the the most successful HR employee engagement platform in the world. How do I get there? And along the way, you've got to be prepared to question and test your own uh, conviction, I think. And I think the great the great visionaries do 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 that. They might just not talk about it as much as the the vision itself. Mm-hmm. Do you think a little bit of ego perhaps comes in saying, well, I saw this and <laughs> I was right? Well, it, 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 well, it's partly ego, isn't it? But it, it also it's it's a hustle that I think is really important. So if you're able to spin, and we see this all the time, right, in mm-hmm. politics, if you're able to spin your vision in such a way that it 
it projects leadership and people follow you, that actually has really tangible positives on the company. So you're more able to sell product, attract the right people into your team, convince investors. So these, these skills are really important. But ultimately, when you develop the product, I think you've got to bring sort of some pragmatism and data-driven design into the, into the process. Mm-hmm. And when you look at this, this is all the lean startup sort of framework really to talk about here. Is, is, is that what you see being universally applied or do you see different sort of models? We definitely see different models. You know, we have some companies in the portfolio. We've got one I'm thinking of that's got a kind of platform that deals with uh, ordering and invoicing. And that founder is just absolutely brilliant at managing his his cash flow, getting as much as he possibly can out of every single pound, doing he's so all over the data, his data dashboards are brilliant, making really sensible decisions. And it's a very early stage company, so he doesn't have loads of capital to just throw in there to mm-hmm. see. And then we have other companies where they have uh, you know, they're on a path and they have committed to scaling, you know, sales teams or development teams or whatever it might be. And and you do start to get, and it is a change in stage because you start to get this point where a Series A type company, you know, you've got to kind of say, we've got the product right now. Mm-hmm. We need to scale operations and sales. And they do have to make some quite big, uh, bold, you know, commitments to spend. And that's where it gets a little tiny bit scary because if you get that wrong, it can come back and, and bite mm-hmm. you. So we do see it's a stage thing, but it's also a founder mentality thing, and it and it certainly varies across the spectrum. Yeah, and and thinking back to presumably, you know, you've got this product market fit, this famous thing as a sort of cut off there. A pivot pre product market fit is a lot easier than a pivot post product market fit. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's a given that. You, you know, you're pivoting to achieve product market fit. Mm-hmm. So it's a given that if you haven't got product market fit, you absolutely should be pivoting regularly and testing and measuring and doing it again, and again, and again. So that's a given. Post product market fit, I think the implications are are higher and more risky. And the reason why is that you might have revenue coming in from product A, and you might be thinking, if we're talking about a product pivot, you might be thinking, you know, if I if I make if I change that product, what's going to happen to those clients? And we have had companies where, you know, they've, they've, they've changed from, you know, we, we launched with this product, we sold it, sold it quite effectively, but actually lots of people churned because the product wasn't right. But we only learned that, you know, 12 months later, and then they've had to make big changes. And then the danger there that you just have to ride out is that the uh, the users and the clients on that original product will probably churn off the platform because they didn't buy it for that that new purpose. So you've got to plan that, um, and it can be quite quite tricky to manage. Yeah, I, I mean, there's degrees of radicality. I mean, the, the famous example I hear everybody quoting is Slack, which started off as some sort of video game company, and actually they found people like the chat chat element, and they turned that into the product. And that's quite a radical change of direction. How common do you see people making something that radical? So it does happen. And I mean, that is a great example. And it's always nice, isn't it, when an example ends in a multi-billion dollar company. So in our portfolio, I can give you a really good example where in actual fact, the pivots are are pretty extreme and we've backed them and and they've worked. So we had a company called Tended and what they made or what they made when we invested was a a wristband that was uh, to help large enterprises look after their factory workers, their loan workers. So if you had an accident, it would kind of know through the algorithms and the fall detection and it would alert your, you know, your emergency worker and they would they would know that you're in trouble. And they started down that line. 
Mm-hmm. And they were about to kind of scale that up. And we weren't sure if they had product market fit. But then 2020 came and COVID hit. And all those sort of conversations very quickly died up because everyone had bigger things to worry about. And what they said was actually, we've got some technology here we could repurpose. And then they made a product that was a very accurate hardware social distancing product. It was the most sort of quickly developed one of, of the whole period, actually. And they had sort of 300 companies desperately biting their hands off for this product and their revenues jumped 20 times. And then we knew that would fall off as as the pandemic um, sort of we, we came out of the pandemic. And so what they've done is they've then taken that distancing technology and they built really a very new, completely unique product for the kind of rail network and construction industry, which is a bit like a walkie-talkie that sits in your arm, but it's centimeter level accuracy almost anywhere in the world. So it's not like GPS where you mm-hmm. could be here or you could be five meters over there. Centimeter level accuracy. And what that means is if you're working on a railway line, they can draw geofences around the live track. And if you stray like a couple of centimetres into a dangerous area, and people die every year from this, it, it warns you. So that's a company that has pivoted, you know, form factor, product, market, mm-hmm. you know, technology, everything really. But now it's at a super inflection point and, and it was worth going through all that. Yeah. And, and was those things where it was customer-led or... To what extent was the company themselves coming up with ideas and generating, okay, we can move into this? Yeah, it's a bit of both, really. So you've got to have a founder at the centre of it all that's, that's A, coming up with great ideas, mm-hmm. and it might be obviously a number of founders, and B, with their little tentacles, understanding what their customers and what their industry needs. So it's a bit of both. And in actual fact, this particular example was really quite customer driven in the sense that they got this social distancing product into some particular companies and then they were saying, well, we have these other problems. And so they were starting to look at those. And it's just about that journey, that exploratory sort of journey that you go through during that design phase that leads you to these really unique solutions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's quite rare that you have you know, a Dyson, for example, who spent something like I read his autobiography, something like 17 years fixated on, I will make this vacuum cleaner and I will make it work. Mm-hmm. And he did. And that's incredibly successful. But the reality is, I think most companies iterate and react in a much more sort of um, exploratory cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then is that most companies or most successful companies, do you think? Well, what's absolutely clear is that if you don't react and you don't pivot when you need to, you're not going to last. I I just haven't known any company. We've got 30 in the portfolio. I helped about 50, 60 through my accelerator, and I've had four of my own. I don't know any company that hasn't, to be successful, needed to react and Mm -hmm. adapt and evolve. So I think if you're not open to that, you know, it's never going to work. I think think there 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 were points in time where there were these whole new areas that weren't explored where you could have that dogged, I'm going to make X, and X just doesn't exist, that entire industry. And then you can have that kind of dogged determinism to get to that point. But these days, anything you can possibly imagine is normally done in one way or another by someone. And so you mm-hmm. have to look at differentiation and, 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 and moats to try and get your advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thinking about the companies in particular and... Pivoting can be a challenge. Change generally is a challenge. And within companies, presumably there's a whole pile of challenges. You know, starting with if you've gone in one direction and invested for the psychologically or financially in one direction, you've got that sunk cost. Changing direction can be hard. 
How do you think companies and managers and founders cope with that? Yeah, it's, I mean, it is hard. And I think it's a great test to the quality of the management when they do that. One of the most difficult things to do is is when you're having to make changes because you're, you know, things aren't going right. So mm-hmm. the revenues are not what you expect. The sale, and, and, and most startups, you know, they don't follow the hockey stick curves that they come to us in the investment pitches. You know, it takes some time to get it right. So the most tricky thing, I think, is when you have to, for example, cut down on staff or back off your plans. I mean, that that's really, really hard. And I think it's important that they lean on their on their kind of boards um, when they do that. If it comes to a product pivot, then there's a different psychology because what you often get, I mean, entrepreneurs are inherently super optimistic. I mean, they would no one would ever start a startup company if you're a realist because the chances <laughs> of success are, are so slim that you would just say, you just say, there's no, there's no point, you know, yeah. the, the chance is too slim. So they're in, so optimistic. So what you sometimes get with founders is that they have this challenge and they, they decide on a pivot and the danger is that they they think that's the silver bullet. And so they get quite enthusiastic and optimistic and they go charging on their horse with the sword held high in that direction. Uh, and I think that's um, something to look out for. And on boards, that's really where the governance comes in and the board has to challenge them on that and say, OK, let's just just stop for a second, pause for a second. Let's look at can we can we test this a bit more cheaply first? Can we do a little test to check and then we can go if it, it put the put the pedal down if it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, presumably board can be in a difficult position. In the one sense, you've got someone who's got the courage to sort of say, this isn't working, I need to change. On the other hand, they're the ones who led them down the dead end in the first place. Do you mean the, the founders of the, the founder. ones, the boards are the ones? Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Um, I mean, board dynamics is something that we could have a whole sort of one, two-hour conversation on and and the way that that interacts with the executive team and, mm-hmm. and challenging the decision making and i think that one of the things that i do and i sit on um quite a few boards seven or eight boards one of the things that i'm probably quite well known for and maybe you know <laughs> maybe some people have a bit of uh, you know what's the word not fear i hope it's not fear but they know <laughs> that this is going to happen is i always challenge founders so a lot of people sit around a board table and they're thinking things and they're not saying things mm-hmm. because they nobody wants to throw any cold water over an idea because part of this game is, you know, you need the founder to be super energized and super keen. However, when you're making these big decisions, something can be discussed in a board and it can be presumed that that's the way to do it. And it could easily be a half million pound mistake easily. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, it, you know, I think it's so important that if you're representing shareholders on a board, you ask the difficult questions. And after a little while, not that long, a few board meetings, the founder will get used to the fact that actually it's not that you're being overly, you're not being personally critical at all, but you're just using it as a forum to get out there the kind of challenge that you need is healthy challenge mm-hmm. and if they can come out of that and they've justified and made it's made sense they're going to be a lot happier about going forward in that that direction too mm-hmm. and by extension if there's a pivot that's substantial usually that has implications for cash funding whatever how hard is it for founders to make the arrangements if you like or or bring uh, sort of investors in particular along with that and, and maybe it's the same dynamic 
No, really, really good question, that one. And lots of examples that, that we've had, because I think in any portfolio, you're going to have companies that have these these pivots of whatever type it might be. One of the challenges that you have if you're a company in that situation is that quite often the pivot is coming from a, a position of, of need. So what, mm-hmm. what happens is you've made a product. So we had a company where they had a particular product, a particular platform. And when we all thought that was the thesis, it made sense and it grew quickly. And then what happened was you started getting more churn and you realized that actually this wasn't delivering. The thing that we thought was adding value wasn't really adding value. So what happens is your revenue chart kind of goes up. I'm drawing a little picture for those Mm -hmm. who are listening to this. Your revenue chart kind of goes up and then it starts to flatten and everyone starts thinking, help, what's wrong? And But you build up a body of evidence and you start to do these tests. And so it makes it easier. It makes it very difficult for them to go out to new investors because... Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what the founder will say, they'll just look at this graph of this flattening off and think, yeah, but where's the evidence? You've got it right now. But for existing investors, once you, you've seen the journey, you've assessed the founder and the way they make these decisions and you've seen these tests and the results and the data, then that's where you can get some conviction that actually, do you know what? We're going to keep backing this founder, this team, because we believe we can see it through. So it really does come down to, in those situations, uh, I think your existing investors to, to keep backing you. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about situations of need where if you don't pivot in a sense, it it, it may well be either maybe not critical for the company or you, maybe it is critical for the company to survive. Presumably, there's also circumstances where the manager or the founder sees, well, actually, we're doing okay here, but we could do better somewhere else. That sounds to me like a harder discussion to have. Yeah, it is in a way. And it's funny because actually when, when the need is there, it's much easier, isn't it? You know, yeah. you've got to do something. I mean, anyone could look at that and say, we've got a problem, that's, we need to fix it. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a small number of our companies in a certain part of our portfolio. And many of our companies, we've got this kind of big middle section where they're growing and they're growing pretty well. And we're quite happy with them. And then you've got the top companies that are doing exceptionally well. The company's right at the top. You can see the product market fit and they're they're growing really quickly and you just kind of rely on, that is where you get your head down, you rely on the plan. Where it's difficult, I think, is where you get this middle band Mm -hmm. where companies are growing, they might be growing, you know, 2x year on year, but you're kind of thinking, well, should we go to the US? You know, should we set up a subsidiary in the US? Mm -hmm. Should we start launch product B? Should we be working with partners more than direct sales? All of these different aspects, these, and they're all quite big decisions. Any one of them might cost, you know, half a million pounds to to just fully work through that option. Uh, and those ones are tough because you're talking about distraction on the team. You, you don't want to have to sort of fix something that's not broken. If it's if it's working, it's kind of why why change it? You know, maybe that growth rate's okay for this company. Mm-hmm. So you do have to look at it. You're quite right. You have to look at it more carefully. And again, and I know I'm. You know, it's like a broken record. But for me, it always comes down to what's the cheapest, quickest way to test this? Let's get some data and then we can move forward in an evidence-based way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned team there within the company. Presumably, pivots also raise issues with teams where either you've got a team that's mentally invested in the, in the previous direction or might just be the wrong team for the new direction. Presumably, that's... A complication any decision that you're making here yeah and that happens i'd say quite a lot really because you know these are all people at the end of the day and people have their motivations mm-hmm. and they're there for different reasons we have some companies like we've got a company called culture shift um and a company called trans report both really strong kind of esg values companies 
and that you know p- people are in those companies because they believe that it's mission driven they really believe in the direction they're going to um, and that's a huge part of why they stay and 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 what drives them day to day and then there's there's other companies where there's less of a you know impact mission should we call it but everyone is kind of behind the journey and if you change the journey there will be people that that don't agree and that don't think and i think what shows what's what's the hallmark of a really strong leader is a leader that can say, okay, well, we're making this change. We've done the tests. We know the evidence is there. We're going to make this change. Maybe it's a change to enterprise sales, uh, or maybe it's changed back from enterprise sales. The sales team needs to change, or we need to move from sales to more marketing-based. So mm-hmm. we're going we're to have to cut some positions here, move some over there. And then they realized, and they separate those kind of, I don't want to get rid of my mate in, in sales because he's a really nice guy or she's a really nice girl. But um, but equally, they know for the company, which is for the good of everyone in the company and the shareholders and members and, and everyone else, this is the right way to go. And they're not afraid to separate the emotional side from the, uh, the kind of business side and make those decisions. So when you see pivots, does that typically involve staff changes, firing? Can you re purpose staff i mean presumably if staff's in the wrong place they'll at some point want to move on too yeah that, i mean it's a good point so i think it comes down to what we talked about earlier you know what's the reason for the pivot so if the pivot if the company is doing well and we think there's an opportunity over here and it's going to grow even further then what you're probably doing is you're probably shaping the direction of the new highs and where you're going to put the new spend in the company mm. um, so it probably doesn't mean that you're going to you know suffer some uh, losses in the in the team that were originally there. Uh, if the company is is really struggling and there's something wrong, product, marketing, sales, whatever, whatever it might be, then it's sadly inevitable that you're probably part of that is the team, either not in the right place, not the right people, and you're going to have to make changes. And so in those cases, it's it's pretty common. And I and I can tell you that in our portfolio, uh, the best companies are the ones that act in either of those two scenarios decisively mm-hmm. so that you know they don't dilly dally around for 12 months six months to sort of just see if it works you know we, we if you've got the evidence you make the change because the opportunity the cost of the of getting it wrong the cost of not moving is so high these are not profit gen- generating companies these are loss making companies that's why they're raising venture capital so just by delaying six months you've got the wrong salesperson in there wrong sales leader you delay six months well guess what you know that's going to cost you half a million quid not just because of the cost of finding someone new, but because your pipeline started to dry up. It's going to take you ages to pull that back up and you've not hit the targets. So it's, you know, it's big implicate. You have to be decisive when you make these changes. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads on to naturally, in one sense, what mistakes do you see founders making? Or what's the most common mistakes that you see founders making when it comes to pivoting? Yeah, when it comes to pivoting. So um, I think the biggest mistake is, let's say being slightly lazy about it and not doing those tests so not you know checking that their conviction is right by running some really cheap quick tests you know speaking to the market whatever it might be that's mistake number one because you need the evidence you need the data to make those decisions Uh, a common mistake that we see when it comes to pivoting is 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 hiring new people to execute this pivot rather than just trying to hustle it yourself to begin with because the cost of new people that have been hired in, into an incorrect function as i said earlier is just so high mm-hmm. um if you start going in the wrong uh, the wrong direction and as that then, people were saying well i've got this existing business manager i'm going to bolt on this new strategy is that the sort of people kind of take with that 
so this happens all the time, right? So you invest in a company, mm-hmm. they've got the capital to execute their plans. They say that they're going to go after um, a different part of the market, different vertical, uh, different size of company, and they'll go out and they'll hire a sales leader for that. They'll hire two SDRs and or whatever it might be. And then that's a new team that's there. And they'll kind of make those those hires and it will take six months, seven, eight months to realize that this hasn't worked. Either the people are not right or their thesis around the pivot wasn't right. And it really, really sets them back. Whereas a better way to do it is either to just try and hustle it with who you've got to mm-hmm. test the new theory before you make those hires or better still probably is maybe hire one person and work with them to hustle it. And then they've seen that they've seen that process. They understand what you're trying to prove and the metrics and everything else. And then once you've really nailed it, A, you've worked out if that person's any good because you haven't just hired them and handed it over to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but B, they've seen how it's how it's come through the wash. And when you hire the the two or three people under them, then you know it's going to be done in a way that's really going to create more efficient change. Mm-hmm. One approach that I heard somebody on the podcast talk about last week was actually hiring somebody as a consultant on the first basis. So you've got someone for three, six months, you as leader can learn as well. And then when it comes to hiring the person, you actually have the right knowledge to hire the right person. Yeah, I mean, anything really that creates more of a controlled, let's call it taper, towards where you want to end up, I think is good. I think anything that avoids this kind of shock multiple hire situation, which is almost impossible to get right, particularly in an environment where no one quite knows what it's going to be like in 12, 18 months in terms of capital availability, I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously seen lots of companies changing pivots in what direction. Someone comes to you and says, I'm thinking of a change. What's your advice? What, what do you say? Well, this is what, do you tell them, I've seen this elsewhere, this works? You know, how, how much experience can you take from other companies and, 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 and bring that to companies that are making changes? Yeah, we, we do that a lot. Probably one of the, the biggest values we bring, apart from our own experience, to the portfolio is knowledge of all of the other companies and what they're doing in the in, in the portfolio. So we have a meeting once a month at Blackfinch Portfolio Update Committee meeting where all of us and also some of our external IC members get together and we go through every company. So everyone on all of the boards on our companies knows what's happening on every other company. And that cross-fertilization knowledge is super useful. But what I would say to them is, first of all, I would get them to explain in, in minute detail what their thesis is around this change to make sure it's not just like a flippant, this is going to be a silver bullet. Because as I said earlier, you know, so optimistic founders are that they will sometimes just convince themselves this is going to solve all their problems. And then I would just encourage them to to design a, a cheap test to work out whether it's, it's going to work. And you can do that in so many different ways. Uh, and then on the back of that, if it makes sense and the numbers look sensible, then you, you mm-hmm. double down and you start to make the change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and presumably that... There's always a progressive, you know, it's not a case of, okay, we've done a single test. Presumably there's, you you talk about pivots, even if you've got your new strategy or your pivoted strategy, you're still going to have to continue doing lots of tests within that to get the direction. So you've got general direction always. and then you hone, you tune in further. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you just might do a bit of a test 
before you go and hire like a small extra little sales team to cater for this particular market. Uh, but once you've got that in place, so once you've got that sales team in place, then as a business leader, as a CEO, you need to equip yourself with all of the information to assess whether you know it's working now at scale. And that's the bit that, again, you know, you can very often get wrong. Um, so, yeah, you absolutely need to continue to monitor it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our favorite questions. So we're going to test you and see if you can remember what you said two years ago, two and a half years ago. So we'll start off with what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why do you make it? So this has changed from two and a half years ago, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, this is a company which I'm really excited about. It's called Currency. Um, it's a really good one to understand. So what they have done is it's the most elegant use I've seen of open banking. If you go traveling abroad, you spend money on your card that's connected to your high street bank, you will be fleeced for fees, FX rates. You know, you can you can easily spend one, two, maybe 300 pounds over a course of a holiday on fees and you don't realize it's happening. What currency does is rather than being a separate bank account, like a Monzo or Revolut or something, or a prepaid travel card, which you have to top up, uh, it sits directly on top of your normal high street bank account. So it's a card, mm-hmm. uh, a debit card, a travel debit card that sits on top of your high street bank account. If you go traveling, you're going to be paying lower fees than you know, you've know you ever paid before. It's going to be telling you how much you're going to save. And you have to do nothing. You just have to sign up, you get the card, start spending it, start saving. So those are all the reasons we loved it, because they, they're the first of the market with this model. Uh, we've just invested and they're doing um, exceptionally well. Well, I can I can second that because Ruben and I spoke just before I went on holiday and he said, get this card. So I did. And actually, not often I could actually talk about companies directly. I got the card. It worked fantastically. It was so easy to do. Although my email inbox was flooded in a couple of days where I spent lots of money. But yeah, I, I can testify it's a it's very good product. So so you owe me you owe me a beer for that one then I think <laughs> I do owe you a beer for that so yes I will I oh, know that that would be inducement maybe we'll leave that one <laughs> now it's a great card and you know one of the, what did you like about it well as you did you know the team started using it and we all loved it you know it's just such a mm. no brainer there's no reason you wouldn't use it you have to do nothing differently just use this card to save loads of money yeah yeah no I I've I've had another card before which has been great in many ways, but you got to stick stick money in a separate account, so it's j- just that little bit of faff. So, in the classic VC term right, of market product management, we all know that they're very important. Which for you is the most important? Management. I mean, team, and I, I'm certain that that would have been the same when we had the same conversation years ago. I hope it would be, but it just comes back to what we've been talking about all throughout this this uh, podcast, which is that product gets pivoted you know you've got to be in the right market don't get me wrong mm-hmm. and you need to start the odds in your favor and needs to be a growing global market but the thing that that you've got to get right is the team they've got to be capable of navigating this absolute roller coaster ride of this this growth you know vehicle and making some more right decisions and wrong decisions along the way mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure that's what you what you said last time that's a relief <laughs> So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah, so I think a really good example is an early company we invested in that after about a year or so, we realized wasn't working. It was a team thing, probably at its core. And 
And I think what we learned, it was one of the first, it was the first company really that, that had had those problems in the portfolio. And I think you really don't want to, you know, it's like a big deal when you build a portfolio and the first company starts to have to have challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we did that probably wasn't right was we spent just incredible amounts of time and a lot of my time, months, trying to, you know, turn this company around, trying to give it the best chance of success. Um, and ultimately, for, for various reasons that were kind of really outside of our control, it didn't work out and the company didn't uh, didn't make it through. But but on reflection, you know, in all of that time and energy spent on this company, that probably very little at that stage could have turned it around. I think you know, you can be spending that time on your your kind of middling companies, your top companies, and what you can be achieving by getting one of those companies that are going right, you know, better, but with support could do even better, is if you go from a kind of like a four or five X to a five, six X, you've completely offset the impact of this. this. So I think it's really this portfolio dynamic, which I think is an impossible, constantly impossible task for mm-hmm. portfolio managers, which is where do you put your time? Yeah, how much time do you put on the ones which are really not working? When do you decide that you're not going to continue to back them or and then how much time do you spend on the winners? Yeah, it, it seems to me it's a very difficult task for a fund manager because A, you're a human in, in a sense, you have that human empathy for the people you, you've been working with and often you've been working for, for a while, you like them to some extent or you get on with them to some extent and you don't want to just cut them off ruthlessly. And I think also as a portfolio manager, you want a reputation for supporting your companies in the difficult times. And perhaps it's not always clear, well, this company's struggling now, but we can push through it. Or this company's struggling and we can't push through it. And you don't really know that necessarily when you first start sort of digging in. No, that's right. And it's, I mean, it's it's really, really hard. You know, we've got around 30 companies, give or take. And, you know, there's always going to be some companies that are, that are struggling. Obviously, some companies doing like flying, other companies growing. And the ones that that, that are more challenging, it's so hard to, to help those companies see it, see it through. And you're quite right. We, you know, we try to work with them and do everything that we can to, to, to try and create the best outcome. But you do have to, I think, overall, if you're trying to do the best for your clients, you've got to think where is the where's the best use of my time today, mm-hmm. and yeah, and not just kind of run to the to the fires all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, presumably you do have to run to fires some of the time, and that's 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 the difficulty. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely do. I mean, there's no you know there's no avoiding that. I'm afraid, but it's just that kind of. So what we what we do, you know, one of the things we've realised talking about the learnings is. It's actually better if you can build a network of partners that are really good at particular things mm-hmm. so that your time can be spent working out what's wrong with the company, mediating the fix, and then introducing them to the, the right external people to help them execute and see through that fix. That's, that's a really good use of our time and a really good way to support companies in the scalable way. Mm-hmm. So it's basically finding them the right mentor rather than you being the mentor yourself. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and we're lucky because we've built this network of, I think it stands at 88, although I think I'm seeing three more people next week, so maybe it'll be 91 before long. But um, venture partners, we call them. It's like a Ned roster. These are people that all have particular expertise and skills. And so in that group of people, we do have people that are great at marketing, taking a company to the US, sales, you know, all these different elements, product. And so we can kind of introduce them and they can start to help. Having having a pool of people, I think, is definitely a big help. 
So the EIS and VCT industry in which we work is, is fantastic in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? You're right. It is, a, it is fantastic. And I'm going to use this opportunity to just remind everyone to read the McKinsey report that shows how unbelievably fantastic it is in the UK compared to every other country in Europe, because we had a third of the top 1,000 startups in Europe came from the UK, uh, which was more than twice as many as the next country. So it is fantastic. And um, I'm going to pick on one particular thing, which is uh, you know, a real challenge at the moment for us, which is around valuations. So all the different firms use different approaches. If you're mm-hmm. just an EIS fund, you might just hold it flat until the next valuation event. Yeah, if you've got a VCT typical. like us, it's it's probably, you know, you're going to align it with your VCT policy and VCTs have to, you know, bring in market impacts and market effects to their valuation policy. So one of the things that I would love to change, you know, in a really positive way, but it would be very difficult to do, but I'd love to do it, is to come up with a, a more standardized approach across the industry of how you run your valuations and to particularly try and derive better multiple data that's more relevant to these unlisted very small equities because at the moment what happens is you have to kind of use these basket multiples from listed equities so you take top SaaS tech companies and it uh-huh. tells you a multiple and then you know you have to use that and that gets bought into the valuation yeah. policy but it doesn't and, and really then there's a 30% or whatever discount for being unquoted and yeah. if 30% is the right number, who knows? Exactly. But then the market, you know, drops 50, 60% over six months and your companies are all growing and yet the valuation says they're all, you know, and so it's quite difficult to get that right. And it would be mm. nice that in a way, if we we're all doing the same thing, it would be easier. But I think probably for clients, it's hard because different managers are doing different things. So comparing them can be a challenge. Yeah, it's quite interesting because obviously as part of my reviews of VCTs and EIS funds, I ask what the valuation policy is. And the standard response is we follow IPAVE guidelines or the British Venture Capital Association guidelines. And if anyone's read these, and you probably have, and I know I have, they're not exactly prescriptive. They just sort of say, well, be consistent and and, and here's a couple of ideas and that's about it. Exactly. So, I mean, the iPad, for example, I mean, a good example is you could use a milestone-based approach. Mm-hmm. You know, you could bring in list multiples or not. You know, it's all about consistency, but a milestone-based approach might say, you know, you've got no revenue, but you've hit these milestones and therefore the valuation's gone up. So there's there's such a, um, and that's not necessarily wrong, by the way, mm-hmm. because some companies that are really tech-driven companies need to be valued in that way. But I think, as you say, the problem is, is how as a uh, consumer, as an investor, how do you compare when, you know, really everyone's track records and growth is being measured in different ways? Yeah, I mean, presumably there could be a role for maybe Pitchbook or Bohurst, one of these data aggregators. They're presumably the ones with, they can see what everybody's doing in the sense of they've got all the company data. VCTs, the valuations are in some sense public, so they can see what other people are valuing these companies at. They should be able to create some sort of database that you can benchmark against, I would have thought. Yeah, I would love to see particularly the multiples that we use. So for every company we have, we have a a big spreadsheet and it brings into account the market impacts, the comparables, the growth metrics of the company and the waterfall. So the share classes and everything Mm -hmm. else. And I would love to see that the market kind of the bit that comes from the listed market, which is a multiple for the sector. I would love to see that being more relevant 
to you know the types of companies we're really looking at and you're right it would be a bohurst or a bit pitchburg or crunchbase that has the data on real exits at the moment i mean we you know we've had an exit earlier in the year as you know and you know you have this situation where the company is being valued at x and then if someone wants to buy that company and they're going to buy it at any cost suddenly a day later it's it's actually crystallized and it's worth way more and it's kind of that doesn't really doesn't really add up does it so well it, I'd, lo- I'd love to I, fix that I, I think it does a little bit in the sense of i think of normal valuation as being a two-sided market so you're buying shares not get control control is worth a premium so if you're buying to take over at, and get control there's an inherent premium in there so i think the example you spoke about i would disagree we're saying actually that is justifiable so it is, but let me pitch it a different way. So as an investor, where's your return coming from? Is it coming from a market where you're trading shares freely? And it's not, is it? It's mm-hmm. coming from a market where someone's going to buy the company. So ultimately, it should be referenced to that exit point. And then it comes down to, you know, have you got a bit of an outlier there? And someone particularly wants this company, so they'll pay anything for it. And then in that case, of course, it's an outlier. It's not on the bell curve. Mm-hmm. But I think we should at least be referencing it to to exit valuations of um, early stage tech companies and working backwards from there rather than the kind of methods that, that are used today. Yeah, certainly I've got, I've got, I take your point very well about quoted companies because it seems to me if you look at quoted companies and look at unquoted companies, particularly, you know, pre-Series A, they're just not comparable. I mean, by the time you maybe get to Series C, D, you know, these established, you know, there are some quoted companies that might, you know, if you've got a SaaS company, there's quoted SaaS companies at similar stages. But a lot of companies, they're just inherently different. They're, they're so different in so many ways. And, you know, the cost base, um, the dynamics, the governance, you know, everything. But But in particular smaller younger companies are able to pivot much more quickly so when you mm-hmm. do, so so what we see more than anything really like as i explained with tended earlier is when you get these big tricky situations in the market or the world smaller companies tend to create opportunities from that and so if anything many of them start to do you know better or open, create a new product or you know it um it focuses them on a particular market and so you see opportunity coming out of that space, whereas these big list equities, it's just overall sentiment, isn't it? And that's why they're brought down. Yeah. No, it would be interesting because I, I've certainly, it's certainly an area that's getting more discussion, I, I, I think, because not, not just because the market movement valuation is a hot topic, but I think it's something people are sort of focusing on this thing a bit more. So, as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. I've just cleared out my reading for having been on holiday. So, is there anything out there you would recommend? So, I'm going to guess, but I might be wrong, that last time I probably recommended um, one of my all-time favourites, which is which I like because it was written so long ago, but it's so relevant today, which is How to Win Friends and Influence People. I might be wrong. Um, I think you which might case have. You, I might have, right. Okay, good. So I'm going to recommend something different this time. And this is another favorite of mine. And this is called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And again, it kind of boils down to just a few key is things. But it's Childini's book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I just love the understanding how human psychology works and applying that to, you know, business and day to day. And that book does it does it brilliantly, I think. Yeah, I've heard him on a podcast being interviewed. Uh, he's very articulate, and it he it is fascinating. So I should, really should get round to reading that. So, 
and we'll post a link to the show notes for everybody else who wants to join along. So this will be an interesting question. So what do you wish you knew when you started with Blackfinch that you know now? Because last time, I think you're still relatively new in the post, so... Yeah, I, I can't remember what I said. Maybe it will be the same. But um, I think overall, so I came from a kind of like a, an operator background. I had a few companies and that was, you know, where my mindset was, was um, growing companies, founding companies. And I I think I thought that moving to venture capital would kind of have a lot of the the fun and excitement of meeting all these new companies and have a bit less of the relentless, you know, <laughs> demands on your time and i think i probably got that wrong so i mm-hmm. think probably what, what what i wish i don't know if it would have changed anything but what i wish i wish i would have known was that it wouldn't be any easier than running a startup is what, mm-hmm. is what i wish i would have known <laughs> yes well i guess in some sense you have run us even though black french is an established company you creating a new business within it is is a kind of startup it does. It certainly does feel like it. And certainly on the team side, we've got a great little team in adventures uh, and it's brilliantly supported by the rest of the group. So it does feel a bit like a kind of, particularly when you're doing the deals at taxi rent, you know, it's got a bit of a startup feel to it. So maybe that's one of the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Blackfinch, where should they go? Easiest thing to do is what we all do these days, which is pop onto Google and type in Blackfinch Ventures, and that will lead you straight to our website where you can find out more. Excellent. And if you don't even want to do that, we'll post a link in our show notes so you can find them very easily. So thank you very much for coming back, Ruben. I've really enjoyed today's discussion, and it's really good talking about pivots. When you suggested the topic, I was like, why haven't we discussed this before? So I'm really glad uh, you suggested that. Thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was really good to to have this chat. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.